0: Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Hello, Regenerates. I am so excited to bring you Kim Stanley Robinson, one of my favorite science fiction authors. I, I can't even say one of my favorite science fiction author, and I'm a big sci-fi fan, I've been really heavily influenced by his work over time, as you'll hear in the interview. And um, yeah, it was really awesome to spend a couple of hours with Stan. Just, uh, we talk about his writing process, character development. Um, There are so many things that uh, were left unasked by me. (laughs) Now that the conversation is over, I'm thinking back, oh, I wanted to talk about landscapes. Uh, One of the things about uh, Stan's work is it's so beautifully embedded in place and you know he's really a stunning landscape writer um and uh, i guess his ne- next book is actually going to be sort of a memoir uh about you know his his relationship with the sierra nevada so um that should be a, a beautiful opportunity to to have a real tour de force of his landscape writing but in our conversation we focused a lot on um yeah, everything from his writing method and uh, character development, and some of his influences, um, um, some of the things, some of the um, things that he, I guess, maybe was rea- reacting to as a writer. Um, um, really fascinating conversation. And I, as someone who's, who's always, I've always really venerated writers and novelists specifically. Um, I think it's a really powerful medium for change and exploration. And, uh, so it was just really an honor to get to speak to Stan at length. Um, in the second half of, the the talk we we start to dig in a little bit more to his his recent work uh, and the ministry the book the ministry for the future and the central role of uh, what he refers to as a carbon coin um, or uh, what Dr. Chen refers to as a global carbon reward and the idea of sort of strategic uh, quantitative easing focused on carbon uh, reduction carbon drawdown uh, emissions reduction And maybe other public goods as well. Um, We talk uh, around uh, really important different themes and Boy, I just hope that you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's um, coming after a bit of a pause with the podcast. Um, Things were very busy leading up to mainnet launch for Region Network. And um, very proud and happy and grateful to be able to share that uh, Region Ledger is live as a public blockchain, which is very exciting. Um, So, yeah. Now I'm back on the pod- podcasting bandwagon. So I'm gonna pump this uh, this one out as soon as possible. Hopefully you'll get to hear this pretty shortly after it was recorded. And uh, I'm gonna try to get back into the saddle here and try to provide everybody with, um, boy, I'd love to make a commitment to a weekly release, but it may end up being more like uh, every two weeks. But very much looking forward to getting back into the conversation also been dabbling a little bit with Clubhouse Uh, I have to say I don't I don't totally there's things that I think are quite cool about Clubhouse there's other things that I'm, I'm not real excited about and the quality of the conversations there haven't been up to what I'd like to see so well that is to say maybe I'll see you out on Clubhouse I am you know meandering about there a little bit but More so, I'd like to start inviting the community to participate in conversations, live conversations over on the region network discord server, where we have a voice channel. Obviously, we also have chat channels. And I think there's a really awesome opportunity for Sense making and di- building dialogue and uh, movement building, and uh, I'm hopeful that our Discord server can serve as a forum, as a as a sort of a public space for having some of unfolding some of the important conversations and evolving the ideas um, and action and and ethics that we're exploring here on the episodes of. Planetary Regeneration podcast. So I will uh, do my best to have a link to the discord and the show notes and uh, as always I'm endeavoring to do better and better with show notes and uh, titles and all of the other mechanics of being a at least some somewhat reasonably competent podcast host and my infinite apologies for all of the ways that I'm falling short but I hope as always, that the the quality of the conversations that we have uh, make up for any of the um, rough around the edges <laughs> aspects of the production of this, which are entirely my responsibility. <laughs> so, um, without further ado, I bring you uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. And we sort of jump right into a conversation. I hit record because we were already getting into it. So it's a little bit of a, a abrupt start, just us getting to know each other at the start. And, uh, and then we really kind of pretty quickly dig in and, and it starts to get deep. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, thanks for listening. Have a beautiful day. And uh, it's springtime in the northern hemisphere. Um, go plant a tree. It's fall, autumn in the southern hemisphere. Go plant a tree. It is, you know, in the tropics, depending on where you are, may, may or may not be rain. If the rains are coming, go plant a tree. Um, all right. Talk to you all on the interwebs. All right. So um, let's see. So I actually grew up in Alaska. Um, so I'm not from around here.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> Gotcha.
0: So I'm still learning the, you know, the hills and the hollows and, and all the ins and outs of uh, what it means to be living in Western Massachusetts, where there's a way deeper history, right? <clears throat> like we're just yeah. talking about Melville and, and Hawthorne going on walks around here. And uh, yeah, so it's a different, it's a different,
1: uh, different world. Yeah. Well, welcome to Mass. And um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> um, so, we didn't sort of do a, a
0: formal introduction for those who are listening. Um, Stan, I'm super grateful to have you on uh, the podcast here. Um, you know, I, I sort of shared this a little bit in the email, but it's always uh, worth reiterating. You've been a big influence and inspiration in my journey. So, thanks for all of the fantastic uh, art and um, the, sort of the deep invitations for reimagining the world that you've. Uh, gifted us all with. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Gregory. Um, I mean, it's always a a pleasure to hear that, and it's a pleasure to have one's books read. Um, it's uh, when they're read that they really um, come come alive. Um, so I'm very appreciative.
0: You know, I sort of i i have this experience sometimes of either desiring to or or finding myself in situations where I kind of think I'm a character in one of your books. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's creepy or flattering, but
1: <laughs> um, No, it's yeah. good. It's good. I, I've had that experience. Um, of people come up to me out of, uh, who have read the Mars trilogy yeah, and, and those characters, maybe because they have so many pages and such long lives are um, vivid in some readers' minds to the point where they have favorites or they have the ones they identify with. And so that's been an interesting experience.
0: Yeah. I know different life phases. You know, I can see the, and I actually wanted to, one of the questions on my list of things to explore with you is just how you went about doing character development specifically for the Mars trilogy, because, you know, obviously those characters, I mean, different moments in those books, you're, you know, I feel, I feel myself really empathizing with the the humanness of these, these people who are aging and reminiscing. And it's just really quite a powerful character driven experience. I was curious about how that, how you developed that.
1: Well, it's a good question. And I, and I I actually to me, uh uh mysterious. So I will have to kind of wander or, or uh, see if I can explore a little what I think happened there. Um, I, I had an initial situation. I wanted to write a novel about the terraforming of Mars. So you begin with getting there and it is what it is now. <clears throat> and then a group of people um, start the process of settling in, of becoming Martian and of terraforming the place. Well, uh, it seemed to me that that was a controversial and long-term problem. So um, surely there would be somebody who thought it was a bad idea. So um, then there would be people naturally, if they're going to be doing it at all, they're going to be people who think it's a good idea. So you have an initial kind of green-red, as I called them, split, and, and,
0: Sachs.
1: and in sacks. And mm-hmm. in sacks. And it's easy to imagine that they would be um, uh, adversaries and maybe leaders of movements. Uh, and then there will be the kind of people who are cut up in between them who don't care or who have instrumental projects of their own going on that are less about terraforming, and more about politics, more about independence from Earth. So, um, well, okay, this is something out of uh, French structuralism, that these aren't characters, these are octants. And an octant is um, an expression of what the plot needs to do, that will act out part of the plot. And it's possible that one uh, character, as you, we would call them, <clears throat> might be the conveyor for two octants at once, or, or half of an octant. And they exist in structural patterns with each other. Well, I was very influenced by that. There's a great book by Gerard Jeannette called Narrative Discourse. Hmm. Um, in French, it's called Figures. Uh, but in its English translation, Narrative Discourse, it's one of the classics of structuralist literature in uh, literary criticism. And that's the tradition I come out of. That book is almost entirely about Proust. Proust's uh, Remembrance of Things Past is this gigantic um, I maybe 4,000-page novel about a small cast of characters in, in uh, turn-of-the-century France in Paris. Well, it's one of the greatest novels ever written, without a doubt. And the funny thing about Jeanette's studies of what novels do and how characters work, the one and only example for every single thing novels can do is Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a joke. And I was already a Proustian. So maybe that's one of the reasons that I love that, um, that, that, that particular study so much. And I have it all marked up. It taught me a lot. And the Mars Trilogy is maybe novel six or seven in my life. I had already written a lot and been very influenced by Philip K. Dick, who what he would do was a chapter would be from one character's point of view, not first person, but third person, but third person limited. You're inside their mind. And you would... Um, Uh, a chapter would go by on your inside character X's mind. The next chapter, you're in character Y's mind. And then the next chapter, character Z. And they don't necessarily like each other. And crucially, they don't understand each other. So that um, the readers reading along, they think they have a fix on these people. But then you go into another character's mind and it seems like you're in a completely different world almost. And and in Phil Dick, you very often are in a completely different world or the world's going to fall apart on you i i think he found a method and it it, you see this in faulkner you see it in uh the sound and the fury and um uh um as i lay dying this this uh shifting point of view methodology is not invented by philip k dick it comes out of modernism Hmm. but he used it novel after novel and my my phd dissertation was on philip k dick uh and i quite loved him even though his novels are bizarre and not my kind of uh uh, writing he's interested in reality breakdown in a way that i'm not Mm -hmm. but he taught me a lot about structuring novels Mm -hmm. so that's how so to get back to the mars trilogy i i i you end up with needing um a maya frank john type triangle of and that's very philip k dickian uh, and also Joyce Carey, the British novelist. The idea that you've got two men interested in the same woman who, uh, in the power gradient of patriarchy, she's powerful by playing them off each other, by being stronger than them in um, uh, strategic terms as a as a personal mm-hmm. politician um, and and more charismatic. That's obvious. Then you got your Sax and your Anne. And because of, um, this is a building project, Terraforming Mars. You very much need Nadia. You need a builder, someone who's effectively an engineer, but also in the trades, and is a scientist that is also an engineer. So the story situation calls forth the need for these characters. Mm -hmm. And then I lived with them for six years, and they grew up, and they went on and on. And also, crucially, John and Frank are dead at the end of volume one. Yeah. Well, why did that happen? I mean, I wandered around afterwards thinking, but wait, i got two more volumes to write and I just killed off my two most interesting male protagonists. What am I going to do? And at that point, Sachs kind of raised his hand. It's like, oh, I can be the hero. And I'm thinking, really? Because he was a very minor character in Red Mars and not particularly uh, prepossessing as a protagonist, you might say. So I wrote the chapter in Green Mars called The Scientist as Hero yeah about sax and that showed me that a sax was great as a character and a protagonist but b i could be open to doing anything in the mars trilogy in terms of opening it up and finding new people um, who were important Um, and so that's how it came about
0: yeah well it's a fascinating i mean that Yeah, Sachs becoming the hero, I'm sure influenced many people to in to love and engage with science in a way to have to have a protagonist who is a scientist and who is in love with the beauty of science. I I mean, it's very, I'm sure it's had quite an influence on on many readers.
1: I think that's right. People often, he's their favorite, uh, he's their favorite character. And that often connects them up and saying, well, but of course that depends on also understanding and, and Nadia as the engineer. And so they exist in a network, but he is so prominent and people are fond of him because of the geeky factor the, because of the idea that he was maybe on the spectrum um, and, um, you know, was compared to a, a hundred lab rats, that jumped inside a human's mind the myth of sex it was a a permission to be um peculiar and and yet um, human and capable of growing because he has to learn how to dance he learns he has to has his brain torched and has to um rethink his own brain which many people have to do with brain injury there are things that happen to sex that are um intensely engaging and that are more than just uh, although I love uh, Mister Spock from Star Trek very much, um, you know, and Sax owes a lot to Mister Spock. This this kind of um, flat affect and uh, let's be rational here. Well, you can go beyond it when you have a novel of a couple thousand pages.
0: Mm. So, you know, I, hopefully this isn't too much of a of a left turn. But linking it, linking this thread through characters, you know, where does Coyote come? come come in and you know the and and maybe broadly i've always been fascinated and i think there's a i want to i actually want to there's a whole sort of geography of conversation that i'm really fascinated with and maybe the entree into that could be through coyote but more generally i'm thinking in many of your books, I mean, I guess there's a couple sort of discrete series, but in Science in the Capital series, in the Mars series, and in this sort of most recent, I'm not sure how you refer to it, but, you know, 2140, uh, New York 2140, the Ministry for the Future, and I guess maybe Aurora's part of that, you know, sequence as well, um, Anyway, the, the feral, there's always this feral edge energy that in some ways, you know, it, I, I can see from a pattern level how it's sort of the catalyst for like a hyperxis or a, a moment of change or shift. Um, and I'm just curious, both in sort of the artistic construction, but also in how that resonates with your theory of change. You know, what what is it about these, Sort of like feral characters moving through the plot that uh you know are they just an instrument to tell the story or is there something deeper there that you're um that this is that you're curious about and that's why you're sort of writing them in and exploring them in the in the writing
1: well i think it's that last i am interested Uh, when you mentioned feral that put it together for me uh, I can say uh, just parenthetically that I, I, there's this, these most recent sequence of novels of mine, I think of as the orbit six because I wrote them for my editor, Tim Holman at orbit books. And um, this is a little bit of an artificial distinction because there's some very uh, uh, outlier books in those six. I think of them as a unit, but I also would add Galileo's dream mm-hmm. that came, that came right before them. So that, the Orbit 6 actually has a, a precursor that, that I think is part of my progression there. But the Feral thing is I've always been interested in as you've seen. And 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 I think it, it didn't quite start with the Mars trilogy. In Pacific Edge, which came right before it, you have this utopian society. Yeah. But um, Kevin keeps seeing a shadow, a figure on the borderlands of uh, it's out of the corner of his eye. It's kind of an um, uncanny and, in, and even scary vision that he keeps having. There's something out there. And I think it was this was a gesture that we're never going to have a rational, good society where everything's on the table and everything is plainly spoken and clear to the eye. That's a plan, but it's not a lived reality. There's always going to be the shadow in Jungian terms. There's always going to be the unconscious mind and our emotional lives that are going to be heavily involved so when you get something as as rationated as a as a utopian novel the good society it's important i think to gesture towards the unplanned the uncanny and the unconscious that is always going to be there no matter what you do in terms of making a good society and and it's probably a good thing that we'll always have this element i would say even though it can be scary at night um, so in the Mars trilogy, I thought, oh, I need a stowaway for sure. It just was, it seemed obvious to me. Somebody who got um, uh, hidden on board. And then to develop who the coyote was, uh, Desmond Hawkins. Well, that was a process of the whole six years of unpacking. I, I don't have these things planned in advance. By writing, I find out what, what is going on. <laughs> it's um, a a process of exploration that is the joy of writing a novel is that I don't have a plan Mm. Um, I have a situation and then I write and then I find out what happened
0: that's beautiful Um, yeah I I, you know I wondered I the first book that I read of yours was Red Mars um, and I didn't come around to the three Californias trilogy until I don't maybe last year or something I um, I I read them, um, and I was struck that Kevin specifically. I was wondering, well, in 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 a way, all three protagonists. I started to wonder if they were sort of, in a way, modeled on you, uh, you know, in some way, at like at least indirectly or part parts of yourselves. So, and that's sort of, um, you know, a, a larger question: what is you know, in, a, in creating a protagonist, um, what's the relationship with your own, you know, lived experience? Is there a tight correlation there? Or is it, um, you know, does it depend or is it pretty, you know, intentionally
1: distant? Well, mostly the last, I think a novelist, I, the kind of novels I'm interested in are not self-expression. Now that said, the Gold Coast the the middle and central panel of those California books yeah uh, Jim McPherson, Kim Robinson it's an obvious uh, gesture to say by the name itself that this is a an autobiographical novel which is a, a creepy and un, unnecessary project um, I need uh, I mean I needed to do it but I don't like it when people do it I think the emphasis on uh, in american literature of the 20th century to write what you know and then to or to like kerouac he's maybe the worst example a great writer but you go out and do something and then you write it down and that's your novel and that makes it more authentic or more important or or more lived it's somewhat hemingway-esque although hemingway was good at it and yet hemingway ate up his own life and turned it into raw materials for his books. And eventually he and the books fell apart, even more so with Kerouac. It's not a good strategy for a novelist from my point of view, but I've done so many novels. It's been a long career. And that's a really,
0: wow. I mean, so I'm just, sorry to to cut you there but there's something really poignant about that just in terms of like, I'm having a little bit of a a mind fuck moment here (laughs) in terms of, um, I mean, all of those authors have passed through my life in some way. But you know, so just to use the you're familiar with Adam Curtis's work, uh document, you know, BBC documentarian. Um he did this documentary no. called hypernormalization. No. Um so well so hypernormalization is the process whereby society becomes sort of like b- bombarded by Misinformation, disinformation, false information, social media, reality television—you know, just sort of this whole sort of uh, almost like schizophrenic, schizophrenic delusional, you know, body without organs. Sort of all of a sudden, we're disconnected from ourselves, society. We don't trust anything anymore, right? So, so just like as a concept, hypernormalization—we're we're we're there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, as a young person growing up through, you know, I'm a millennial, right? So growing up through and into the sort of social media, early social media stage, I long have had the deep desire to be a a writer actually. But I also, I think maybe, maybe it was Kerouac or Hemingway or somehow I got this like mimetic infection that felt like I needed to be doing, you know? Uh, to, 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 to have the art unified and so it it turned into this weird sort of like sporadic blogging or like this weird performative social media and maybe even this podcast is a part of that in some way like how does the art how to unify the art into life and vocation livelihood sort of a lived experience and for me it's deeply wound up with earth care, and a particular ethical stance, and like reinvention of society, and many things that I find thematically, you know, brilliant, and attractive, and exciting about what you're doing in your novels, right, where there is this intentional utopian reimagining of um, reimagining the world in a way to sort of outline the structure of the existing world, and, you know, maybe a pathway to, to transform that. So you sort of, Weaving that, commenting on the genre of sort of bringing oneself into work, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it does feel like there's a, there's a, uh, a glimmer of wisdom for those of us who are, you know, in this hyper-normalized social media generation <laughs> yeah. to take pause and think about, just to, to, just to have a thought. You Know
1: <laughs> well, from my generation, the moment that I was a young wannabe writer, um, Kerouac and Hemi were, were, were the models, and they were bad in the sense that they involved um alcoholism and mistreatment of women, and all this was the necessary ingredient for being a good red Indian American literature person. So, for me, very crucial was Gary Snyder, yeah the counter example of pay attention to the land, pay attention to indigenous people, pay attention to um, the uh, Asia across the Pacific being in California, very important rather than looking back to European tradition. All that was uh, Gary was crucial for me. And there are many ways to write a novel and I, I don't want to be prescriptive or judgmental. Everybody's got their own way. For me, I like the idea of the novelist as a Keatsian negative capability. You get out of the way Mm -hmm. of characters and situations and you write their story and it's not about you. If you really wanted to express yourself in that moment of self-expression and romanticism or whatnot, then you do lyric poetry. That's the genre in the novel. If you get into a novel and you want to express yourself, then you're suddenly, you're doing memoir, you're doing the Carrick Hemingway eating of your own life. You actually go out there to have experiences knowing that that's going to be the fuel for your next book. And that turns, it's very delusional. Then the experience itself is already a simulacrum. It's yeah. all, it's fiction in advance of the fact I've got to go out there and get drunk and go to Mexico because otherwise I got nothing. But but, uh, the kind of novel that I, that I began to admire as a science fiction writer, as a uh, Californian, and ju- just as a personal affinity is uh well i'm I'm a suburban white middle class house business, and I got nothing of interest. Other people are interesting. Can I write about them and then write the other? Um, And and try to imagine being the other and then I get my cast of characters. So my own life I see people I use them often in my books habits of of speech, um, moral positions, everything comes from others uh and then if you concoct a character that's really a set of octants as i said before that character might just perform a function in a plot and be papered over um and you know i get a lot of shit for my characterization which offends me quite a bit because i think that i've actually done a pretty good job and i'm always wondering when i'm told that because i write about the future or science that i'm bad at characters i'm thinking who are you comparing me to and I mean, with Proust, I can say, okay, you know, Proust is the master of characters. But um, but I do, I think I believe in my characters as being other than me and being of interest. That, And I have generous readers for whom my characters do spark to life. But the point I wanted to make was sometimes they spark to life. Sometimes they just do their job. But yeah. when they spark to life, someone like Sachs in the Mars Trilogy, they began to surprise me. I don't know where that stuff comes from um it's a matter of listening to voices and then and it's very shamanic Uh, get out of the way listen to the voices and see what they tell you and write it down
0: yeah yeah well I mean definitely I've experienced several moments um in in your works in which I've sort of felt uh and it's hard to know you know why exactly but I've sort of felt the you know the affinity or like, I, this is a live person that I know, or it's a, or it, or it resonates with some part of my I- experience or, you know, some sub persona, you know, unexpressed or something in my life that I'm like, Oh, wow. You know I, um, So sort of c- circling back around, I, I was, um, I was listening to your uh, podcast with my friends over at Nori, um, uh, a couple days ago, just in preparation. Cause I didn't want to cover the same ground. Cause I, I think mm-hmm. we have a, enough, you know, listener overlap and community overlap that it'd be useful to maybe go a layer deeper or go in different directions. So I just wanted to make sure I was covering different ground. And I noticed you mentioned, um, you mentioned your own affinity for disc golf and, you know, mm-hmm. you had a friend who plays disc golf and that's sort of part of things. And it made me think back on, uh, the sci- science and the capital trilogy. I forget the main character's name. Is it Frank? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Easy guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always Frank now.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, Frank, you know, ends up going feral, right? Yeah, and he ends- Yes. Which, which, you know, there's something really interesting there about sort of re- the journey to reconnect with uh, nature and with people and out of the tech, technocracy and into maybe more of a um, relation lived relationship with the world. And there's also, I think, mention of him falling in love with the sort of paleolithic, um, you know, uh, action of moving through the landscape with a small group and throwing something <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, and going and finding where you threw it. And there's something about that, um, that specific journey in that book that I have felt is really an amazing invitation for the, for the 21st century in a way <laughs> for all of us. So, yeah. Well,
1: thank you for that. There is a a feral and freegan culture out there. um, Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Yes. and And they love that book, if they've run into it, because of the positive portrait of that lifestyle. And, you know, it was a novel about National Science Foundation and about scientific policy and about climate change and how we might address it at the federal bureaucratic level. Well, that's very dry. Very rational and very much bureaucratized. And I think it's important to write about that stuff. But in the novel, when Frank loses his apartment and begins to go feral, I've actually heard back from people at NSF. This is about 2000 permanent employees of NSF there in in Arlington, Virginia. A couple of them um, have actually given up their apartments and bought small RVs and moved into parks in the DC area. They've actually done a Frank. Uh, which I think yeah. is taking it quite far. But that's but, great. Yeah, it's kind of inspiring to think of it. But he's the he's sort of the enabling device for that novel to be exciting and out and, and teach us things about how, you know, we all could be a little more paleolithic and dealing with climate change that would reduce your carbon burn as well in instructive ways. And he starts to read Emerson and Thoreau. And so Frank's project is crucial. In the novel, uh, Charlie Quibbler and the Quibbler family, uh, that and Gold Coast are two of by far the most um, autobiographical novels I've ever written and never a good idea, I believe. And Frank is the way that the Green Earth trilogy manages to uh, be more than just bureaucracy and just my own suburban life and how we might deal. And Frank kind of goes out there and lives it. And, and also Frank is younger, uh, Frank is a millennial. And there is, a. I think that young Americans are facing, they're looking at the baby boomer generation, but also the carbon burned life, the, the commodified uh, standard normalized life like you are talking about yeah. and saying, look, that wasn't a good idea even to begin with. We're not going to uh, be able to do it. We don't want to do it. What do we do instead? Yeah. What's, what's the model? And so for me, it's been a little bit as a baby boomer and a suburban Mr. Mom, my backpacking life has been a kind of a escape. And an alternative that's been psychologically of crucial importance to me in my daily life, it's represented like a month out of every year or even a little less, many years, more like two weeks. But um, when I'm going good, a month of every year will be spent backpacking in the Sierra. Now, this is just a recreational event. It's not a lifestyle change. But it's been uh, compensatory to my ordinary suburban life, and it's also oriented. You know what? What's interesting in suburbia is my garden is writing outdoors in my front yard and making my writing an outdoor activity, which was crucial. I did that about 2006. I began to realize I'm tired of being indoors all the time. So that I thought I was tired of writing novels. That was not at all true. I was tired of being indoors all the time, looking at my laptop. Yeah. so i moved i moved out into my front courtyard and in in davis california i can do that 365 days a year uh with appropriate um, um adjustments and uh, every novel since since uh, six, and this is probably a frank thing frank from the green earth thing in writing that book i moved outdoors myself to write it just to kind of model it and feel it and i knew never moved back indoors so I have, in fact, even though I am just a suburban Mr. Mom, I have spent the, my working life outdoors, and that matters. And a lot of working people spend their working life outdoors. People, carpenters, people, foresters, people in the trades, farmers. And so for them, they're going, well, duh. I mean, to spend your working life outdoors is to be an animal and to be real and to be blessed in ways that white collar indoor workers don't even know they're missing it. And well, for me, yeah. I am a white collar indoor worker, but I have managed to move it outdoors.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I, I mean,
0: I can certainly say, you know, I, I'm in year four now of uh, launching this, of launching region Network. Uh, you know, we just launched our mainnet uh, last week, you know, which is was, which was pretty exciting. Um, and I've never been more domesticated and more uh, and had more um, of the of the challenges of the sort of domesticated um, carbon intensive, especially COVID and, you know, everything sort of shifting and being at home. I mean, they're just, you know, yep. the layers of that. And and before that, I think I, I, I managed to maintain, you know, I mostly lived in eco villages or co-housing communities, um, it, you know, and or you know couch surfed or whatever it was very you know so I sort of resonate with the uh, the lifestyle the the choice to be more feral and to spend significantly more time outdoors um, you know my background was in permaculture design and I, so I spent a lot of my a lot of my life I spent out you know with campesinos and Latin America, or you know, with ranchers or farmers in North America, and just like working and helping think through what does it look like to um, regenerate, you know, regenerate, have that uh, meet human needs and increase ecosystem health. This sort of, you know, I, I think you spoke to it. You've spoken to it beautifully in several novels, but this sort of ecopoesis, the art mm-hmm. of, you know, and that's maybe a little bit more terraforming, but I. I sort of jokingly refer refer to it as Gaia poesis since here we are on earth, (laughs) but yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, it's, it sounds beautiful. And I bet you, I mean, it seems to me that you said you grew up in Alaska. Well, that's got to be formative uh, Ah. as to what's real and the, um, the, the greatness of the North, the boreal um, world wrapping forest that you grew up in. This is, Uh, landscape really determines a lot in one's uh, mental life. And then to be able to turn it into um, uh, a project like you have is a beautiful thing. And, and, you know, I kind of am writing for um, people like you who are creating lives like that. They need their stories told now who tells them it doesn't matter. It's the story that matters. Um, I've, I'm very much in love with the writing of Elena Ferrante. And we don't know who Elena Ferrante is. She just has been a pseudonym. Uh, That's a a pseudonym for a real woman in in Italy who writes these novels. And and what she insists on is, look, it's my novels that matter and you don't need to know about me and what my personal details don't matter. And as for myself, I've always um, tried to stay uh, make my novels be my main public speech, but I've always been happy to uh, respond to interview requests. And I notice Ferrante is the same. It's just, we don't know who's answering. <laughs> uh, for me, what I would say though, is my own personal life has been uh, suburban normality of the baby boomer kind, uh, very similar to my parents in some ways. In the 1950s, for me, it was the 1990s, but really the life has been... Um, you might say boring. Um, I found it interesting, but there's nothing to distinguish it as a project from ordinary American suburbia. But as a writer, I'm interested in more uh, some projects than that. And so that's what I've written about. And so it's not really writing about my life, but more what I've seen. And so when I hear from people like you who've really done it, uh, and have and and yet the books have been helpful and fun well that's a that's good that's a i guess i would i would say that's a triumph of the imagination on on my part and your part to co-create these books
0: yeah well what i was thinking about vocation in my early 20s this sort of um, dichotomy of are you going to be a writer right or are you going to go Sort of meander off in search of the adventure. I think maybe what I was, you know, referring to back when we were talking about Kerouac and, and Hemingway was, you know, a, and in my clumsy way, trying to contextualize that in the social media world. I, I think in order to write like you're writing, you know, I'm in awe of the world building and the, the character. You know just like it's the whole process right they're they're these beautiful complete works of art that can't be done while you're on the road you know
1: right
0: it, that has to be done there's discipline there's like a discipline to that i think that's that's what i imagine <laughs> because yeah. i try to conceptualize the process of th- these these sort of like complete world building arcs that Invite us into sort of a, a picture, a structural understanding of the world, and I am just sort of in awe, so I think I really applaud the choice that you've made for for the rest of us because these pieces of art I don't think they would be able to be created you know f- from on the road from the adventure you know yeah. I just don't think that's possible.
1: no, me neither. I think that there's a mythos about the artist as uh, starving in a garret or zooming around like Kerouac, and it's a myth. And that actually what you need is an immense amount of time and personal stability helps a lot. So you, uh, the, the model, I mean, there are a couple of models. These models of what artists should be like are powerful in the minds of young people who want to be artists and that was certainly me. So you choose your project and your project, if you, if you say, or your project chooses you, maybe if you're lucky, whatever, uh, when the project comes down on you, you've got it. If your project is to write novels, then um, stability is a blessing because it's labor intensive and it's time intensive. And if you can indeed afford, and, it, and this is economic, but it's also psychological, uh, the time, to sit for a couple of years where you've got nothing else to do but focus on that book. Like I, uh, because of my wife is a scientist and as a federal employee scientist, a, f- a federal technocrat scientist and, and indeed one of the hugest influences on Sax Russell that there is. Um, uh, I have been the home parent with our kids. So it's, a, it's very similar to um, Mr. Mom of the, 1950s version, that stability, uh, both uh, personal and financial, has just allowed me to sit and I stopped teaching in 1985. So I I loved teaching. And indeed, I'm reading George Saunders book about teaching literature. And I realized that, damn, there's a whole um, uh, gratifying lifetime of work that I missed that I put into um, uh, writing novels and taking care of kids instead but you can't do everything yeah so um, you have got to pick your project and let your project guide you as to how you do, do your time and I've been lucky the combination of Lisa and my kids my the a stable boring suburban existence is sort of like um, uh, the model is an art one of the many models that used to be when I was young You could either be like Um, Well, James Joyce, very stable, taken care of by other people. He had time to write. Shakespeare, he had a job. He helped to run a theater. He had time to write. Um, And and it seems to me that these are the models that I would look towards rather than the scattershot, um, you know, Rambo, Kerouac, you're on the road, you're writing on the fly, you're a genius, blah, blah. And then you burn out young. Well, that's, you know, they didn't choose that. That chose them. And they have a different kind of inspiration for the writing that's fine. But really, novels, especially kind of what you might call the 19th century monster novel, the realist novel, which is a tradition I love and I'm part of, you need a lot of time just sitting around writing and planning and thinking it over. Yeah. So I've been lucky that way.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I'm a, I'm a father now with a couple of young kids. So I think a lot about the, the element, you know, the stability, um, you know, and and this, this crux of the, you know, how to infuse the paleolithic patterns into one's life, you know, and maybe it's a simple thing like you were mentioning, which is just Setting up your workstation outdoors, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it isn't dramatic and large sort of revolutionary change. Maybe there are more incremental, small changes that we we are making to our lifestyles in order to sort of set up the right stability for whatever the the, the vocational project that we're in. You know, raising kids as part of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, writing or whatever. You know, whatever the vocational endeavor is, that kind of stability is, uh, you know, it's a rare commodity in a way, probably at a global scale. It's not that many of us who have the privilege to have, you know, th- that um, anchor. Um, and at the same time, you know, it can't be taken for granted because even people who who may have the, the privilege, you know, may, uh, you know, end up... <laughs> Creating some strange psychological <laughs> social drama that just sort of implodes it anyway. So
1: I've been thinking from what you were saying about um, this this um, social reproduction. This is a Nancy Fraser term that um, that capitalism is parasitical on social reproduction that people do for free for each other care. It gets turned into care industries and sometimes it's monetized and and this is mostly women's work, but um, Uh, if you are in a semi-post-patriarchal situation, if you're a man paying attention, if you're a feminist man, you can get involved in it, because the work is endless, and it's more than can be done. So mostly women have done it, and it's unpaid. It's uh, Fraser calls it social reproduction. And without it, then there's never a profit, because capitalism is parasitical on it and rides it like a um, like in that Heinlein story where the, the, the creature that rides on your neck and, and you get carried around by. Carol Umschwiller did that also in the mount. Um, we're being ridden by a, a, an economic uh, parasite and yet the care work still has to be done and the stability gets created by that, sometimes under a stupendous duress. Where privilege comes in, like for me, is a well a uh, buttressed by social security, by uh, an income that has been my wife's and then later on mine. But in the beginning, uh, being involved as I was in social reproduction, I got to see it from the Mr. Mom angle. And, um, you know, the more you pay attention and try to imagine the life of the other, trying to imagine the life of, of women and reading women writers who have been extremely articulate on this all across the board, well, it can make you very angry. Um, you realize that there's this stupendous injustice that's ongoing every day, even now. So, but then, you know, it's um, this Chinese thing, hit your tiger to your chariot. You gotta somehow use that anger as a driver, uh, as a as something that pulls you into good work. You know, put your shoulder to the wheel, do your part, but then also be aware in the in the world uh, where are you privileged? And so, okay, I'm white, I'm American, I'm male. Uh, I'm uh, from the baby boober generation, to, which was a, a, a time of economic prosperity. So that's like four times privileged. It's a, it's a stupendous combination. And then you got to think, well, how can I give back? How can I pay it forward? How can I write down that story, how can I be attentive to that and try to do my best to um, put my shoulder to the wheel? Well, this is an ongoing, everlasting project. But one thing that's been occurring to me lately in the last couple of years is that maybe it needs to be talked about more, uh, like we're talking about it here. Rather than just being a given, it needs to be discussed. And and, um, everybody's got their own project, but uh, by adding this part into the discussion, you can maybe frame the issues for younger people coming up
0: yeah well i i mean i certainly my perception my self-perception or my my understanding of this sort of relationship between um privilege you know broadly speaking you know i guess maybe from a um maybe from sort of an intersectional feminist perspective um, I' I'm, I'm not a scholar of that space, but you know maybe we're that though the terms and theory from that I think are starting to sort of like weave their way into culture in such a way that at least we're sort of we're in that you know um, we're, we're being influenced by that in the conversation for sure. My understanding, I think pretty much ever since I was quite young, but certainly um, coming, to formation through you know my time in college and you know the the actually the professor um Dr. Vogt that introduced me to your work actually somewhere around in there things sort of came to a really sharp point around the inquiry around what understanding that in some way I was a prince you know even though I you know I was a you know my parents were blue collar and then went back to school and then became white collar you know so there's you know I sort of experienced in my you know in my childhood I experienced that process of um, in in Alaska blue collar and white collar doesn't even it doesn't mean the same thing it means in other places right? right a blue collar worker like my dad was making enough money to have an airplane and you know that's just how it was you know that's how, that's the Alaska lifestyle. That's why people, you know, that's yeah. why, you know, American, North America, you know, U.S. <laughs> US persons in, in Alaska, at least, and I think Native Alaskans too. This is kind of a ubiquitous thing now. Um, so anyway, I just had this sort of stark understanding that in a way I was a prince if I looked at this. And I think that part of that was influenced, you know, I was, I was an exchange student in high school. I went and spent a year in Ecuador. So it was very stark. That was like I couldn't escape the, you know, I had a self-perception in high school of being average or maybe even slightly poorer than my, you know, other friends and just, you know, my little world. And then all of a sudden I was in this place where the fact that I had earned whatever, I had earned $12,000, you know, and my summer job before I went to go spend a year in high school in Ecuador made me you know, richer than like almost anyone around me, right? And so anyway, something about that formative experience crystallized this relationship for me around the pair of uh, privilege and responsibility.
1: Yeah.
0: Right, that it, you know, and if you're a prince, how do you be a good prince?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, that I think is a beautiful way to put it. It, it strikes me that um, if, if everybody in America could get that perception, given that we're 5% of the world population and 25% of the carbon burn and 75% of the capital resources yeah. and really kind of sure. the imperial power on the planet in economic terms, despite the changes, despite the Chinese uh, rise we still are in this old empire. So, okay, what do you do with that when you, when you come to that realization? Um, paying it forward or, or trying to uh, put your shoulder to the wheel, what does it really mean? Um, since everybody's got their own project and can put it to use, like re- regenerative enterprises, regenerative agriculture, that's crucial work. So, there you go, it's perfect. Uh, I'm writing novels. Well, that's a, that's a bourgeois art form, but you can tell stories of things getting better in ways that can be called utopian. And I'm, I'm proud to be a utopian science fiction writer, mm-hmm. but utopia means imagining a world where power gets horizontalized to so that everybody's got it. So you essentially try to conceptualize your own privilege as being a precursor to a general condition. So that's been my working yeah. method for uh 30 years it's really pacific edge where i began to write about the pocket utopia being a, not a thing that a, a pocket utopia is either model for a coming general prosperity or else it's a aristocratic island you know like yeah. these, these silicon valley people who think that they'll build a little compound in in new zealand and then they'll be okay well this is the bad response it's a but bad response yeah I mean, a very unrealistic fantasy for one thing, because it won't work, but also morally just an ugly response.
0: It's yeah, it's a, it's an ugly response and it's a practically implausible response.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, and that's what, you know, I mean, there's a couple different directions I'd like to go here. One of them is just maybe, you know, what your thoughts are about sort of, you know, Elon Musk's Mars project, um, and the sort of, you know, just to paint the the picture here and what, it seems to me that that is in some way, there's there's noble things and exciting things, I find. I'm like, ooh, this is like noble and exciting. There's something here that I could resonate with, like ingenuity and hard work and intelligence. Okay, there's, there's something there. Um, on the other hand, it feels not so dissimilar from, hey, we're going to, you know, like, I hear people talking about you know that we're going to attract the best of the world to go to Mars and it's going to be the the elite that go to Mars and we're going to like escape and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it feels a lot like hey let's go build our bunker in New Zealand it doesn't feel very dissimilar in a way it's like you know oh,
1: yeah, yeah they're isomorphic those those are fantasies of escape uh, privileged escape and it won't work um, as far as Musk goes he's a complicated figure and I want to. Emphasize that I think his Mars talk is a hobby. It's like a kind of a nutty hobby, like uh, stamp collecting or butterfly collecting or uh, penny collecting. Mm. Hobbies are peculiar and personal, and Mars is his hobby. When he puts it out into the world as some kind of philosophical position or plan for the future, then it gets scary. And when science fiction goes bad, you get Scientology, you get the frozen heads industry. Um, <laughs> you get um, any number of uh, bad results from taking a bad science fiction story seriously and trying to apply it in the real world. So there's dangers involved, but the ludicrousness of it can also sometimes pop it like a balloon. Yeah. Now, and the thing is, his electric car company is, a, is good and innovative. His rocket company is good and innovative. He's doing um, batteries, he's doing solar paint. Um, He's got real world businesses that are more interesting than many real world businesses are. Yeah, and Uh, he's sending
0: Dogecoin to the moon. I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, this is the thing. um, He has spoken to the press about being um, possibly a little bipolar. Um, uh, episodes of manic enthusiasm followed by moments of dark thoughts, etc. Well, um, he's he's talked about it himself personally, and nobody's um, cutting him some slack for that. He, and and also the way the media turns ordinary human beings into myth figures that need to be heroes or villains. Yeah. So some yeah, some yeah. people some people think Musk is a hero and a great leader. Some people think he's a villain and a capitalist fool. Um, God, he's just a businessman who in the, in the current model of capitalism allows for monopolies to go monopolize. And those people become billionaires. If you have the first store online, if you have the first payment system online, if you have the first search engine online, then you become a billionaire. These are ordinary guys. They're almost always men. In fact, I think they all are. I've met a lot of them because they like science fiction and they think that they are wizards of science fiction. They're not okay. They're not good at futurology because nobody is right. No, nobody's good at predicting the future. So when they get into the land of future out of their own businesses, even though they're billionaires, they're just ordinary people making mistakes.
0: But that's what strikes me as someone who's as someone who's um, been moonlighting as like a tech executive or whatever. You know, albeit sort of a more. Um, maybe egalitarian, like we're intentionally trying to build things so that there's a a commons and community governance and that, you know, there's a whole lot of trying to buck those trends. But I've been, gosh, I went from, you know, permaculture to, uh, you know, to tech and raising money and doing the whole rigmarole, trying to engage with VCs. And, you know, um, I just have to say, we've recently had some success, right, in all of that. And, you know, full disclaimer for everyone. It, I mean, yeah, there was stubbornness and hard work and other things, but it's completely, it was just like, it's the, the larger conditions changed, you know, all of a sudden the, the carbon market stuff aligned and there was a crypto bull market run and there was, you know, and there was an administrative administration change in office. And we realigned with none of those things are things that I had anything to do with. And if, none of those things that happened our startup would have like we we would have hit a point where we couldn't keep grinding and we couldn't keep you know taking out debt and taking you know doing all the risky things one does to try to start something up and it would have been a, a shift and I I know that that's the same is true for any entrepreneurial story and that the the myth of the heroic entrepreneur as the center of change, sort of the Ayn Randian myth of of like, as someone who I think in some ways, society would paint me in that role. I can just say that's not how it is. (laughs) It's not my experience. It's not my self-experience or delusion that that's the reality of what's going on here.
1: I'm glad to hear you say that, and and I, I there's a couple of things that I that it, it sparks to my mind that essentially you have to surf history like a surfer surfing a wave. Yeah, a wave comes up, and if you're skillful and you surf it right, then you have a successful run. And so there is skill involved, but there's also the wave. I
0: think that's that, a perfect metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, and perfect.
1: then the the other thing is that and and Rand would be the third example along with. Um, uh, Scientology and frozen heads of a bad science fiction story <laughs> being taken seriously. Um, because her, she influenced Greenspan. She was part of the neoliberal Friedrich Hayek, um, yeah. um, uh, uh, Milton Friedman view that all you needed were individual selfishness individuals, and you would get the best society out of that. That idea taken seriously has led us to a lot of the badness that we're in. And, and so, uh, the science fiction story that and, and let's go back to the one that you were talking about before um, if, if, if humans were all killed off and went extinct and there were 5000 billion people living on mars that then humanity could recolonize that we would have we wouldn't have all our eggs in one basket humanity would go on this is a bad science fiction story on multiple levels Um, for one thing, nothing could happen that would make humanity go extinct on this earth entirely because we are like cockroaches are like sharks. We, we have a survivability ratio. We know this because 73,000 years ago, um, a volcanic explosion happened and, um, uh, an extinction event happened, there were only 2,500 human beings left. Yeah. They, were on, they were probably on the coast of South Africa. They scraped by. They had only 73,000 year old technology and yet they still managed to survive. So that part of the fantasy is wrong. We don't need all of our eggs uh, in one basket. The second part that's wrong is those 5,000 people on Mars would not be able to um, uh, survive on Mars itself. They would need earthly support. So um in multiple ways this is bad science fiction. So then when you use it as a rationalization and you go out to the world and you say, well we want to go to the moon. We want to go to Mars. Why? Well, because you can't have all your eggs in one basket. About 90% of the populace has a good enough bullshit detector to say, "Oh my god, this is a nut." And the space program suffers therefore. The good parts of space science i get lumped in with this crazy um, elitist. Uh, if if 500 humans survived, that would make up for the destruction of the other 8 billion. All of the ugliness that is embedded in that bad science fiction story gets tagged onto NASA's um, space um, uh, observational programs that are in low earth orbit. All of the space um, science world and uh, which a, a lot of it I love gets tarred by the brush of this crazy elitist fantasy. So I always argue against it. And sometimes I'm talking with people who are perfectly smart, very brilliant people, just don't agree with me. And they keep going on with this same fantasy. They keep telling this same story. I think it's actually a bad story. that yeah, harms, I, I'm not harms
0: educated enough to know. I, I mean, I am ignorant enough. To have been convinced by you know the mars trilogy that maybe terraforming was a you know was a viable
1: option even so well that was written in the 1990s and i was going with what the what scientists were telling me in the 1990s and some things have changed since then that mean that uh i still think terraforming mars might be viable and might even be a good project give it um if earth is in a stable if if humans and civilization on earth a stable relationship with the biosphere, going forward prosperously. So that's already the that's the project.
0: Right, which is a hundred year minimum a hundred year. We have we have a hundred year project. Yeah. I mean, that's how exactly. I feel about it. Yeah,
1: yeah. So if we go, but say we got to that, yeah, and and we're humming along, we're going, oh my gosh, no mass extinction event, things are going well here. Um, there's Mars up there, and we're and it's gonna be like Antarctica for the longest time. Scientific stations up there, scientists going and visiting, doing their work, coming back. That in itself, when that becomes normalized, it will become boring. People will not give a shit about Mars at that point, the way they don't care about Antarctica right now. There's a base at the South Pole. It's amazing. There's a base at McMurdo and another dozen bases. They're all amazing. On the other hand, nobody cares. Nobody's following them on their feeds. Nobody's amazed by their exploits. It'll be the same on Mars when we get to that state. Then terraforming, that will be one of these, they'll be looking at the nitrogen balance. They'll be looking at where's the water? Is it bonded or is it in aquifers? They'll be thinking about, well, it'd be better if we weren't getting fried up here. And um, it might be a 10,000 year project. People might eventually think, this is cool, let's try it. Because we've got things healthy on earth yeah
0: but it's not not an escapist uh not at at all
1: no at that point it's gardening at that point it's like it's like thinking and also you would want to know is mars dead or alive um if there's bacteria down in the regolith then a lot of people are going to be saying let's leave them alone yeah and and um people have projects like well let's give them a little aid and see if we can make them evolve from scratch and be like gardeners uh, helping to make a new strain, hybridization of Mars. Well, that's one idea. If it's dead and you're bringing earth uh, life there, then it really is like a gardening project with very low ramifications in terms of um, colonialism, because if there's nothing alive there, it's just a dead rock, then why not? So these are the ifs, but they sit out there like philosophical puzzles, like, um, like um, games that you play, thought experiments. So as a thought experiment, it's really cool. As a real plan, you know, you've got to be kidding. And this is what I think most humans say about this. There's only a few space cadets. There's only a few people who are serious about their desire to think that Mars is some kind of uh, salvation to us. And I would would reckon that in serious, uh, that when you get down to, do you really believe that? You're talking about dozens of people hundreds at the most but not... they got good marketing though yeah <laughs> no, it's a it's a great <laughs> story is, yeah. it's a great story well the fomo the the fomo
0: element this is the fear of missing out the hype into the sort of the the capitalist sort of we we ha- we have to get in now um this is a you know it's a gold rush Mars is the next thing this this uh this is exactly why i think it's uh well i mean that instinct i i sort of think is uh contraindicated in in terms of like what the next steps are for up uh, planetary regeneration stability you know a society that we want our grandkids to be living in <laughs>
1: Yes. Well, this it's, it's a fantasy. It's a, it's a mirror. It's a, it's a thought experiment space. You, you think about Mars in ways, well, you know, God, if we could just do it on Mars, then we could maybe do it on Earth, that uh, reflection uh, aspect. And believe me, having written the Mars trilogy, I've had to talk about this a lot. Um, it was a novel. It wasn't a blueprint. <laughs> um, and, it, and in many ways, it's been proved since I finished the novel that we can't do it. Um, and it's an open question right now, but it certainly is not going to be as easy as I described it in the Mars trilogy. And I was using the scientific information of the time, but I was also hand-waving a little or speeding things up. Yeah. Anytime I came across a plan for quickly terraforming Mars, well, there are tit- there are articles titled that
0: comments and all sorts of fun stuff yeah, yeah. nuclear
1: explosions down yeah. in the regolith to heat up the water yeah it goes on and on like that well i incorporated them because i wanted the novel to be within the lifetimes of my very long lived characters but this was these were literary plans these were not uh, blueprints yeah. for the future yeah um, well
0: let's see uh, i, I kind of want to talk a little bit explicitly you know, because um, we've been we've been having a fantastic conversation up until now, and we, we really haven't even yet dug into the ministry for the future. And I'd love to talk a little bit on that front and, you know, um, trying to cover, you know, new ground because people can go and listen to the fantastic um, interview you did with uh, Ross and Paul on the Nori team. Um, um I'd like to engage a little bit with the pattern that you've been developing over the last few novels uh, around sort of um, monetary or financial fiction, and uh, in, yeah. in incorporating systems change at a at a sort of policy or mon- monetary policy level into you know um, as a theory of change for how we can kind of like reorient society. I think there's something really rich there. It's also, I mean, you know, it's the domain that we're swimming in here at Region Network, um, albeit from, you know, maybe a slightly different angle. Although, you know, I, I, so our listeners have listened to two episodes with Dr. Chen with Delton Oh, good uh, it, p- people who are um, longtime listeners. So I've done a couple of of rounds with him, um, and then recently um, Frank von Gonsbeke, who's a who's a friend, and he's been sort of iterating on the chin plan, um, and actually as a proposal out to the IMF to sort of like take this and try to work on it. So it, I also talked at link at some length with Frank. So I'm interested in. of like diving in there there's a couple of different angles uh maybe just to like throw them out like just to sort of pin them up on our (laughs) board or whatever and we'll see where we go um one is i'm really interested in the tension around doing this through existing institutions or the, the right way to do this through existing institutions and um up until now at least i've never had the access privilege Sort of like social network, uh, you know, sort of Davos, TED, kind of like intersect um, to to have a clear read on if that community of humans is really up for like rolling their sleeves up and making transformative changes, like a global climate coin commitment, um, without some significant uh, pushing. And in your novel, in both novels, New York 2140 and uh, the Ministry for the Future, there is some significant grassroots pushing. There's in both cases, there's some coercive um, action that forces the hand of the sort of like the powers that be. the, The people who are the humans who are currently inhabiting the seats of structural power that we've built up over a long time. Um, and I'm just curious if, yeah, I'm just, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that sort of tension around, is this something that has, is this, is this change that needs to be forced somehow? Um, is it change that we might invite and we could even be optimistic is, is taking place? Um, and what, and what does that, what did you learn in your writing (laughs) as you're sort of uncovering and exploring through the novel that you think maybe uh yeah some tools for helping people think about how to approach this
1: well um i wrote the novel in 2019 and and it was somewhat formed in that structure of feeling um inevitably and so it was still the trump years um and I didn't know about certain things that were already going on in the real world, so I wrote out of a hope that, um, hope and fear, of course, that in trying to describe a best case result, I was trying to imagine how we could get to that, and imagining that no matter how we got to it, there was going to be a fair degree of chaos, and resistance, and that the resistance would need to be overcome. And the the later we started on it, the less um, the more violence there was going to be in getting it to happen, and the more uh, chaos and disorder and and the sooner we started the better therefore well so then the story becomes in some sense as a warning shot and a, a statement of saying that if we get into a wet bulb 35 temperatures and heat waves um, that kill people that there's going to be a violent response to that and it's just going to be harder to do things right so better if we started earlier and then i uh, i I finished the novel and then the pandemic hit. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, uh, the novel is obsolete even before it came out. But that wasn't quite right, it turns out. The novel came out last October. And what I think is that people were reading the book better than they would have without the pandemic because the pandemic had shown them that big changes can happen and ordinary middle-class life can be completely disrupted, that climate change will hit everybody in the way that the pandemic hit everybody. So people have been reading it on that basis and they've been teaching me things. And some stuff I didn't know about in 2019 that was already going on then can give reasons for hope. And what I turn to is that there's lots of good projects. Regenerative agriculture, all the regen that you're working on, these are good projects. But in neoliberal capitalism, the way things are priced and valued is a single index called profit and shareholder value, a dual index maybe, that is worthless in terms of actually uh, paying us to do the right things. Capital goes to the highest rate of return. The highest rate of return is improperly priced. We are therefore doomed because really capital does flow like water downstream and you can build dams, you can try to shunt it off in canals and, and, and pump water uphill, et cetera, et cetera. But the force is towards the highest rate of return. So what I got interested in was how could we fund all these great projects and make progress fast and what will make that happen? So yes, pressure from below from people. And I like uh, Erica Chenoweth's why civil resistance works. Can there be nonviolent protest and mass actions, general strikes, um, people power since um, it's distributed and even the poorest billions on the planet have, have a certain amount of power by being people with their needs. Um, can that be marshaled to make uh, leadership institutions and the laws themselves change? So this becomes a political economic question. And that's where I got interested in the central bank. And indeed, uh, Delton Chen's article was a, in, uh, I did run into that, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Yeah, the silver gun hypothesis. The well, um, uh, I would the, what I call the carbon coin. Although he doesn't like that, the carbon reward I think is how he's come down to yep. it. That and he's very uh, good on this. That it's although or maybe uh, I've interpreted him with other people. He's better at interpreting himself. For me, what became important was the idea that fiat money, the central banks, real money, the US dollar, got given to good carbon work rather than for bad carbon work. Yeah. Now, how does that work? Well, there's carbon quantitative easing, as it's now called, and we know what quantitative easing is. And and Chen is good on this and helped to orient me. And then I went to economist friends on the in the radical left saying, Well, what do you think of this? Got advice from them. And then, I mean, just recently, I discovered the Network for Greening the Financial System, a real thing, um, NGFS, 89 of the central banks of the world, including the our Fed in the States, the European Union Central Bank, Bank of China, Bank of Russia, and 85 other big central banks, all on the same um, program gathered together to talk about how can we green the financial system by which they mean carbon quantitative easing by which it might mean something like the chen carbon reward Um, the this organization has put out nine points of things they can do in monetary policy that would shade into fiscal policy that would shade into results in the real world so that your regen projects that i'm seeing on your wall there say regenerative agriculture if you are a farmer, you're marginally close to bankruptcy, you're in debt. If you're told you could do these good things and it would, you would bring carbon down into your soil, he has to ask how much would it cost you, me to do it. And yeah. I recognize it's a good action, but in fact, I've got to do what's going to um, cover my costs and make me a little profit so I can keep going in making food. So really, uh, it's a question of can I afford to do this? But if if you went to them and said, well, this would be part of what you get paid for. You get paid for sequestering carbon into your soil. You're like growing soil as a cash crop. Then suddenly every farmer's going, well, hey, the more carbon in my soil, the healthier my farm is. Amen. I, <laughs> I've been trying to do that anyway. You know, I've been trying to do that anyway, but I couldn't afford to. But now, if I'm getting paid for it, then you flip the script and you still have. What you have is something within capitalism that is not neoliberal late capitalism. You have, and I would hope that since capitalism is a name for a power relationship that is an ugly one, that you would get to post capitalism pretty fast, but by building within the shell of the old, like the IWW used to talk about, building the new society within the shell of the old, using the already existing tools, reforming the hell out of them, and doing a kind of judo flip where you actually pay people to do the good carbon work rather than paying people to do the extractive nonsense that not only wrecks the biosphere, but the profit just goes to the 1% anyway. Um, the, the figures there are shocking, the gilded age that we're in, how much of the wealth created by all human beings, it's siphoned up to the top to the benefit and wealth of the 1%, which I use that figure notionally. You could you could realistically, you could say the 10%, what you were talking about, the Prince class, um, that, that that all the, the top 10% is doing fairly well, but it, but it scales up like one of those graphs, like a hockey stick graph. Right. The top 1% is doing extraordinarily well. And the top 1, 10% can feel like, okay, I'm not doomed yet. But the, the, the slippery slope to the precariat is there for everybody except for the 1%.
0: Well, and even the—I mean, I've definitely been a in the precariat, um, maybe up until a couple months ago, really, my whole life, um, and uh, and I would still say those of us who are precariat um, or or close are still in the, you know, still should probably take a look in the mirror and recognize, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the, yeah. So anyway, not to get into sort of a class. Um, I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole. I'm actually interested in, so just side note, my dad recently read the ministry for the future. Um, um, I love my dad. He'll probably listen to this. Hey, Hey dad. Um, <laughs> he, he worked in the oil and gas industry in Alaska. So it's, you know, part of what, you know, uh, helped me um, become who I am, uh, you know, um, my mom was a wildlife biologist, so I kind of like got both. <laughs> I feel like if you bring those together, you get permaculture. And that's, th- that explains me in a nutshell. But anyway, he read the Ministry for the Future and he told me, Gregory, I understand what you're doing now in a way that I never have. So just thank you. <laughs> yeah, well... Really like- grateful for the lucid sort of like walk through around what happens when we and I, I and the chapter in which the the uh, the farmers I think it's you know in South America there's a chapter in which there's farmers who you walk through this transformation of their life where all of a sudden their uh, financial reality is transformed and and it's due to them iterating and learning how to regenerate their soil and care for biodiversity. And and that chapter right there is just a gift. Um, Thank you for writing that. (laughs) Uh,
1: Thank you. I'm glad you picked that one out. That one has been republished in Regenerative Agriculture Magazines as a freestanding chapter story. I think uh, we did
0: that, actually. I think we're, we're ah, we're one of the people that that you know, asked asked your publisher if we could do a republishing of that because it's such a fantastic, we're always looking for this way because people somehow this intersection, the words that we have available to talk about the, the systemic transformation of starting to appropriately value public goods and how that takes us into a post-capitalist future, but how we do that now and, yeah. and presently, yeah. somehow the words... I think people experience this as very abstract, right? And and even for us doubly so, because we're trying to do it, you know, using a distributed ledger technology, we're doing all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, trying to innovate um, <laughs> governance of the, you know, essentially the verification and FinTech infrastructure. Who governs that? Is yeah. this, who governs that? Can that, you know, a, a question that I hold a lot is can that farmer that, you know, that, that, the woman and and her family who, who are entering into the program to receive rewards, is there a way for them to actually be part of governing the meta monetary system that's part of rewarding them? Is that possible? Is it desirable? This is that specific question. I think I'm really, you know, excited and passionate about, is there a way for, for that for there to be sort of like two things, two parallel courses that are happening here. One is where we're sort of hacking the system to revalue public goods and specifically carbon negative public goods. And specifically, you know, (laughs) the more co-benefit the better, let's do landscape regeneration, top of the list. Um, And secondarily, can indigenous people and landscapes and campesino farmers and scientists actually sort of in the process of that get a seat in sort of uh managing the decentral bank that's issuing the 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 reward currency and managing the verification so that double action um yeah sort of region in a a nutshell
1: yeah well you have to uh, tell me you and your cohort i i um reach the limits of my ability to comprehend. Um, And so as an English major, I can sometimes write sentences that express things that I as an individual don't fully understand. So that in my novel, in Ministry for the Future, the character Janus Athena is often proposing things to Mary that Mary doesn't quite understand. Well, this is me. You know trying to understand how these things would work with distributed ledgers and some and the character dick bosworth uh, the financial advisor economist to mary murphy is a, a friend of mine in in australia uh, named dick who is always uh, t- teaching me about these issues and is a good interpreter so i myself um, have to step back from having much of an opinion except to say um they money is weird yeah Um, and and um social trust it's the the element of it that is social trust i think is in at least now it's heavily bound up with the nation state system so that really fiat money is the space in which uh we trust money to the extent that we do and so that being the case right now it doesn't always have to be that way But while it is that way, I'm wondering if certification, if trust, if this money that paying ourselves to do the right thing needs to come. That's why I focused on the central bank as being, these are public private combinatoires. and same with um, bond agencies and um, like organic farming, uh, rating certification certification will be interesting. Like, okay, I brought down, I brought down three tons of carbon. How do we know? prove yeah. it to me and who proves it who certifies and a whole a whole uh bureaucracy uh, slash industry that maybe is public private consortium will have to be uh, gathered up to do that and so this will be technical and like you say fintech it's important financial technologies they've been rapacious and stupid and wall street oriented they don't have to be no, and don't. in fact we need an egalitarian of financial technology which i think if it comes out of the nation state system all the better but if it rises from below also then that's good too uh, to the to ministry for the future what i think um and going back to your dad oil and gas were what fueled to te- um world civilization yeah. and and also saved the whales so there never should be it w- it's hypocritical and and uh, thoughtless for people to be um although they love to be as part of self-righteousness, to be condemnatory towards an energy system that they themselves have had their whole lives fueled by. it, The question becomes, what do you do now? And what's cool is that oil and gas technologies might be very useful for pumping CO2 back underground and also for... uh, pumping water out from under the Antarctic glaciers. In other words, it's a very useful tech that will continue to be useful. Indeed. And among, among the many little short stories in Ministry for the, for the Future that I think people find encouraging, there's the Navy gal, the veteran, the woman Navy veteran who simply talks about wage parity.
0: I loved uh, it. I loved that. And uh, I, again, a nice sort of soliloquy in which... A really important concept is is illustrated in an accessible way. Yeah, so. yeah.
1: It it was the the form of the book gave me soliloquies these these eyewitness accounts first person narrator this is my story this is why i think it's important they make judgments they tell they don't show it's all backwards to the way fiction sports to work and i always love that yeah and so in this case uh, i got some eyewitness accounts in there that i think are particularly important for making these general points when you add them up like a like a pickup sticks or a, a, a weird construction which is this novel but when you have uh, assimilate them all into one that's the meta story that the novel tells that's why this novel is getting the response it's getting that there could be a best case scenario that isn't really planned it's everybody just trying to do the best on their part of the larger front
0: you, you know i saw a while back that you know, it was on Obama's list of you know the books that he had read, and and that's, you know somehow that gave me such hope that um, that the right people are reading this and getting these you know soliloquies that really you know and I, I've I've seen this in a couple places you know over the last couple of days just as I was you know sort of covering some of the ground of um, you know I read Corey Doctorow's. Um, um essay just talking about um this and some of the other books in his relationship with your work work and um and he was noting um how many that he and many other people were brought to tears specifically you know for me it, there was a couple places but the roll call of my I friends know. you know my friends david and dawn at spherical studios and their region.earth list and i knew probably 30 of those projects personally and had either worked on them or knew. And I was just, wow. I mean, it was just a, quite a moment. And to, to know that that is now that there's sort of a community around the world that in your process of uncovering and exploring this, the rest of us are uncovering and exploring this is really a powerful. It's a, it's a shift. It's a shift in how things have been up until now. Now there's a, you know, it's an inflection point maybe, um, yeah.
1: Well, it's a beautiful thing, that chapter. Um, uh, I, I, I was invited by some friends uh, in the neighborhood who are um, uh, personal friends. They are part of the California Native Plant Society. They uh, said to the people at the California Native Plant Society, you should have Stan give a talk. I gave a talk. The executive director, Dan Glusenkamp, um, we started getting together. Uh, when, on his train would pass through Davis. He would get off the train. We would talk for an hour at a bar by the train and he would get back on the train. He introduced me to a friend of his, Eric Burlow. Eric Burlow was the Eric, one that- Yeah, yeah. that was a
0: good connection. Awesome.
1: <laughs> Eric sent me to, yeah. the, to the map. I look at the map, I go, holy moly. This, it's already really happening. All the good work is already really happening. And it's also bottom up or regionalized on specific projects. And since I was doing a kind of a top-down, what does it look like from the UN agency level a novel um, to include as one of them, one of the set pieces, one of the soliloquies, all these things. Well, that was a great moment. And then in the audio book, I went to it to see what they did. Everybody identifies themselves in English, but in English, accented by wherever they came from. Amazing. It's a quite a beautiful, it takes 10 or 15 minutes to talk that list.
0: But it's and, so beautiful. I mean, I listened to the whole, I mean, it was very personal for me because Obviously, there's sort of an intersection with, um, with a bunch of humans that I know. And I was sort of like waited with bated breath as each one, even though I've, I know the list and I know how it was compiled. I was still like, oh, you know, um, yeah. And the, that you're speaking to the audible version, which I would just recommend people who haven't uh, yet interacted, you know, by all means, read it. Too, but the audible version where there's there's people that doing the voices is really cool. It's that's yes. really, uh, powerful.
1: Yes, they did a beautiful job. I love that. I listened to parts of it, uh, um, I just to get a sense of what the voices sounded like, and I thought it was magnificent. And in many ways, it's a step up from the book because you hear people talking to you. So, um, so that's great,
0: uh, Dan. I'm just looking at the time and if you ha- still have time fantastic but i want to respect that you may also uh need to get on with the rest of your your uh afternoon there so
1: well i'm i'm i um oh yeah well i'm happy to go on a, um a little more
0: um, Great. think yeah.
1: about think about what you want that we haven't talked about and then we can we can wrap it up
0: yeah well um you know it's been a fantastic conversation and there's there's many There's sort of a branching pattern of, of interesting um, conversations I'd like to have. One of which is the, in your mind or in your, you know, in your work and your sort of person, there's sort of a fusion between the exploration that you're pioneering and, and then sharing with the world through these, through the way you've done novels. I think these sort of utopian novels, especially I guess the last three cycles, you know, that you've done really Mm -hmm. um, solidly climate oriented. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the relationship and this is maybe there's another, sorry for the slightly fragmented way I'm asking this question and maybe all of them, (laughs) but so there's a relationship between the state and markets and commons. Um, at least in the way I think about things, you know, heavily influenced by Eleanor Ostrom and how she outlines sort of commons as the missing piece between the you know the state and the market. But hey, by the way, there's commons, and they're not just it's not just a tragedy. And <laughs> you know, so so this idea and the tension between grassroots action and you know, for instance, that chapter of people you know rolling up their sleeves and digging in and creating regenerative change in their home space and maybe reclaiming commons and de-enclosing spaces and coming up with new creative ways of uh, lifestyles and life ways and vocations and economies that represent um, ecological and social regeneration on one hand as sort of a grassroots theory of change and then this sort of like structural, top-down, state-driven um, change, and um, just the you know, what are your thoughts about the? And I and I want to phrase this in such a way as to, because you spoke to this, and again, you know, just referencing for 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 you and other people who are listening, the conversation you had with Ross and Paul. You spoke about. Uh, a, a little bit about this in relationship to sort of incrementalism and using you know fiat and the state and the and what we have in order to create this sort of um, horizontalization of um, access and you know empowerment and and you know health mm-hmm. and all of these things. So I don't you know you don't need to sort of re-explain that. Uh, um, it's shown up, but I'm particularly, I think I'm in a clumsy way sort of circling around this, um, what your perception is of the the right relationship between sort of state and commons, not just state and markets, not just state sort of regulating and engaging markets to um, make sure that they're not causing too much harm and not eroding too much of the sort of topsoil of our social health or ecological health as the water flows down the hill so to speak but what's the right relationship between the state and uh and the commons and and how can we be thinking about that or how are you thinking about that maybe
1: well, thank you for that. Because I have an idea about that that um, came to me from reading Ostrom, and when I was working on New York twenty one forty in particular, if there's massive sea level rise, then the inner tidal, the the what used to be land and now is in the shallows or is at at high tide submerged and at low tide revealed, the legal regime there changes radically. Yeah. So I began to research that, and that became one of the themes of New York twenty one forty with the idea of there's a chapter in that book called the comedy of the commons. So um, I, I came to this notion and maybe this is a reading of Ostrom or maybe I'm just interpreting all the rest of my reading, wherever there's a commons, there is enclosure. It's a battle that never ends. So the uh, you look back in history and the time of the enclosure of the commons in European history is a classic. You have good historians of it, uh, bombs and others um, that, Um, It created such mass suffering when enclosure uh, kicked people out of their use of the commons across, let's use England and the UK, um, mass suffering and death. And the same was true across the rest of Europe. And you get the revolutions. You get the English revolution. You get the French revolution. Um, These revolutions were um, for bread sometimes, for um, suffering people saying, "We, we... down with the monarchy, the aristocracy, because we're suffering. And they instituted democratic governments in Europe. Um, The American government, the French government, these are the classics and a little bit, the English is always complicated. Um, And so uh, democratic government was the commons fighting back was the abstraction of the commons into governance itself from absolute monarchy and the rule of the few over the many, which is like enclosure of human labor, to uh, democracy fighting back and saying, no, um, the world is a commons and we're going to treat it as such by way of representative government That and it's of the people, by the people, for the people, and the land belongs to all of us, and then there are some property rights that we overdetermine well, enclosure comes back. And then government, to the extent there was democratic government, because it always was getting hammered uh, by enclosure uh, powers, um, you, you, you can read neoliberal capitalism from 1980 on uh, as and the destruction of the New Deal. And the idea uh, at that point, enclosure came back big time. Privatization, the selling off of the commons, of the national railroads, of, of all kinds of national goods and the giving of it away back to private interests, that's enclosure again. It happens in the virtual scale. So you can begin to conceptualize uh, one of the ways in which political history has been ongoing as a battle for who gets to govern. And if it's democratic, then the commons and the public are are featured. And that is uh, something that is put forward. And if it's privatization, then that's enclosure come back again. And you grab the government, you privatize it, you throw it out, you you constrict its powers. So this is a one way to talk about government versus business, um, state versus finance, that the two, as my friend Dick said, they're hand in hand at all points, mm-hmm. but they're arm wrestling for control. So the hand in hand has to be seen as two arm wrestlers. Who gets control? And that's the political battle of our time. Um, you. Uh, For me, it's always fight for the commons, fight for the public, public over private at all points to the point where, you know, people say, oh, you sound like a communist. And I'm saying, well, let's examine what's really wrong with the public owning the means of production here. Um, China has state owned enterprises and in many ways they're kicking our ass. Uh, um, Everything has to be rethought and contextualized in this larger battle of people of the many over the few of uh, people power over corporate power, which is to say the 1% power. And so uh, if finance is an instrument of the 1%, then the state has to fight it. If finance turns out to be FinTech of the people and is somehow democratized. and, And this is where I just finished an astonishing book called The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter. I recommend it to everybody. And and don't forget this because what an education! It's about Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, but it's also uh, uh, a meditation on what is government supposed to do. Uh, and Keynes, in the in the tradition, the big tradition of political economy, not the smaller tradition of capitalist economic policies. Um, and he, Carter, is great on. All the aspects of this book. It works as a biography. But when Keynes dies, the book goes on for an extra 150 pages to talk about the fate of Keynesianism in the post war world in ways that are really mind boggling. And all of us that are thinking about modern monetary theory, that's Keynesianism redux with some. Extra additions for our time, yeah. lessons for our time. Mm-hmm. And so you get a great historical context by Carter's book on Keynes. And when you the more you think about that, the more my thoughts, which are vague and and incoherent or inchoate about um, this battle over the commons, that that this to talk about the state is to reify it. Um, maybe we need to talk about it as governments, as nation states, as individual governance systems that go from the local all the way up to the international. Yeah. That there, there's a battle going on over what the laws really are and who gets to benefit from them. Yeah. So it's, it's a battleground story.
0: Well, I think that that, that especially I'm compelled by this, this last um, statement of yours up, about just sort of like holding an image of nested systems of governance and in getting out of the like monolithic, you know, okay, yeah, there's a federal government. It is a bunch of departments, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, governing this and that there's, you know, humans there's, yeah. So I, I would love to just socialize a a thought with you that is my reading of Ostrom is leads me to have the intuition that markets could, could be usefully reimagined as a commons management choice. And that is to say, that it is a, you know, if you think about what Ostrom's sort of laying out, there's sort of like eight um, principles that she observed from you know, her research, looking at people managing resources together. And privatization is one set of rules. It's one way to approach creating a set of rules to manage a resource that, Mm -hmm. you know, has, that has some good things and some pretty bad things about how it goes. And it has tended to be our default. Um, But that it, Anyway, I, I'm sort of like holding it as like, oh, that's sort of like one way, and then and then markets per se. This is you know really heavily influenced by what you know the world that I swim in around blockchain, in which we start to think about game game theory, mechanism design, and essentially the ability to govern algorithms, where we have a set of algorithms, and those algorithms could be something like. A a georgist tax on property, and that digital property or otherwise, right? And that's an algorithm. And so there's a simple algorithm that adjusts to something that can be governed, and a group of people can opt into that. So you can have jurisdictional sort of governance about a market mechanism, right? That I that that I know you're sort of excited about in different ways. I I remember you speaking about it on the um, Nori podcast. So I, I mean. Anyway, I don't know, you know, if that's um, a useful sort of thought experiment, but it's something that occurs that that we think a lot about is sort of how to sort of reinvent or weave in specific market mechanisms, whether they're whether they're taxes or whether they're incentives, such as you know paying for carbon sequestration in such a way to. Um, Make them compatible with expand, like expanding and reinforcing commons, in which there's there's non transactional uh, governance space where people are valuing, uh, people are able to sort of have a little bit more breathing room for a non transactional approach to you know solidarity reciprocity, you know, um, bringing their force of creativity together to produce something. So, you know, I'm I'm, I guess I'm sort of. I'm wondering how that lands with you around just sort of uh, in terms of a theoretical framing of the relationship between commons and and markets, and if that's something that's, or, you know,
1: a thought. Well, like I think that two are somehow antithetical, and I'm going to speak as a uh, against the market and say the market is always wrong, and that it should never have been the tragedy of the commons. It's the tragedy of the market. Uh, yeah. The market, always, the market always misprices things, uh, and I would say underprices things. And I think the tragedy works like this. The cumulative equilibrium, the balance of supply and demand that results in a price being set, which is supposedly the great magic of the market, is always wrong. The, um, the sellers want to stay in business. The buyers are poor. The buyers always will buy the lowest priced version of what is being offered. So there's pressure from both sides to go low. Buyers think, I got to buy the cheapest thing. They go to Walmart. And and you can talk about quality and, oh, if you just pay a little bit more, it'll last years, longer, et cetera, et cetera. People are too poor to attend to that. And they, they calculate that the lowest price means they're getting the best deal. So their pressure is just buy low. The sellers want to stay in business and they're in competition with other sellers with the same product. So they go out there and they say, well, um, the other producer of this product uh, is, is, is uh, offering it for X dollars. I'm going to put my price as X dollars minus one. You see this online all the time. I therefore win and I'll get all the sales. Then they, the cost of making that product is probably X plus 10. So you therefore have to throw 11 units under the carpet. You have to not pay the workers. You have to exploit the environment. You have to throw your pollution overboard without paying for it. You have to uh, ignore costs that are real in order to put out a price that is actually lower than what it would cost to make it. It sounds like bankruptcy. It sounds like predatory dumping, which the World Trade Organization forbids. Nevertheless, it's what happens all the time. So the the market is a fool, the market is a cheat, the market is a Ponzi scheme, the market is two desperate sides coming to a cumulative equilibrium that is the destruction of people and the environment.
0: Yeah, well, there's sort of, there's a part of me that's in wholehearted agreement and there's a part of me that's, you know, that's not. Because there's there's also, you know, also there are market, you know, there's uh, people bidding on art, and um, prices are being driven up and up and up as people try to sort of scramble into a scarce resource that they want to sort of like have a, a, a reputational relationship with themselves. And
1: but yeah, but I want to say that that's work on the margin. And maybe we can make a good distinction here. The market should be confined to the margin that the necessities of life should never be for sale. They should be a commons that regulations, therefore um, say everybody has the right to them. So food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, and education, those are all your human rights and and energy. Those are all human rights that should be created as commons that are shared equally um, amongst everybody and are made equally amongst everybody. That established say you want your iphone 15 rather than your iphone 14 um and you have social security you have life security you aren't scrambling you aren't in fear of your life and you have a surplus that you want to apply to what pleases you on the margin then you let the market do it Hmm. so i have a dual economy in my mind
0: yeah yeah it's 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 very interesting you know, it's, uh, it's something, you know, and obviously there's sort of a, in order to not, <laughs> in order to not get stuck where we're at and, and, and have, um, the ability to make change, to move to a society that is sort of intern, you know, internalizing cost and creating stability and justice and, um, you know, some amount of equity and sustainability, it seems like there's a, there's a, a healthy dose of pragmatism that we all need to take in terms of, um, you know, engaging. And, and I think, you know, just by way of wrapping, I guess, that's something that I, I really appreciated about the Ministry for the Future is the way in which, um, you know, Mary and the the crew at the Ministry for the Future who are engaging in this um, as the representatives of the the UN Paris, uh, the the UN's commitment through the Paris Climate Agreement to to keep us below 1.5 are exploring the pragmatic, clear, sort of technocratic levers how do we make these systemic changes? And um, yeah, I'm just uh, super grateful for uh, both for your work and you know, how it's offered some glimpse of um, hope and excitement and you know, ways that I could see myself in a future that was quite enlivening. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, also the way that your work is, I think, really um, at this inflection moment, this turning of the tide. I feel like as you know, we as a global civilization are going to I think we're going to get our shit together and I think we're going to take action. And I think your the ministry for the future is, you know, at this inflection point, allowing people to see what it might look like to, to do that. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Gregory. And I'm, I'm happy to hear your uh, um, uh, sense of the situation, given that you're at the, at the coalface and, and, and working right at the cutting edge of what's going to be needed. So this is a good evaluation coming from your perspective. And I, I mean, I would agree, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm uh, back um, uh trailing the cutting edge just trying to report on what i see and nobody can see enough to make a good judgment but i am getting a vibe that this tipping point as michael mann said it's not just um, the physics of climate tipping point it's a social tipping point into a new structure of feeling where everybody agrees we have to do this yeah well that's new and extraordinary and a lot of good things are going to pop out of that and to the extent that you know Ministry for the Future somewhat filled an ecological empty niche in the <clears throat> ecology, in the social ecology, we want this story of things turning out well. There aren't enough versions of it. There should be many more. And like my clumsy um um proposed political economy of needs and wants. Um, you know this is so primitive, and and uh, what I would want is projective econo- economics, yeah. or political economy. Lots of people should be devising these systems and, and making proposals at that level of this is at that level of legislation. Really, we should do these things, and and you mentioned tax policy, very important stuff, and all the rest of these things. Um, these, in fact, taxes are the state imposed on on the market, and and so therefore, I love taxes. And, and you can get into all of these con- conversations, but just to wrap up, the general vibe right now seems, um, and I think it's the new administration uh, behaving so intelligently, um, the, the world having uh, gotten through the, or still in the pandemic, but thinking about the lessons of the pandemic. It's all combining to make uh, me think that things that I wrote about happening in the 2030s, the, the timeline in Ministry for the Future is already radically wrong. Um, it's going to happen soon. It's all on us right now. So, in that sense, the wronger the ministry for the future is, in in many ways, the happier I'm going to be. So.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I I definitely feel pretty galvanized, and my sense is it's been a long slog. You know, it, uh, it's been a long slog. Um, on multi-generational I mean there's just there's been a movement of people who've seen this and have been trying to take action to on climate but environmental issues more broadly and you know (laughs) fighting the enclosure battles you know it's been it's been cumulative this is a long legacy and I do feel like the tide something has happened I don't know I would even pinpoint the actual tide change maybe a little bit earlier but I think now the you know now we're on the flood tide and, and we can feel it moving you know in a, and yeah. for a while there it was just sort of like <laughs> just kind of hanging out on the you know just the change between the ebb and the flood and we just didn't know whether we were here or there but I think you know I think things are moving and I for one you know where I place my hope is how humans behave when you know we just have to do it yeah yeah. We, we just have to do it. There is, you know, we can be distraught about how hard it's going to be, and it's going to be hard, or we can just do it <laughs> and uh, and problem solve. And there is something amazing about the human spirit when we're in situations um, that, you know, it's just do or die, we've got to make it happen. And I do have a sense that the gestalt of, you know, the, it's starting to shift. There's a critical mass of us who are just <laughs> ready to go. And let's just make it happen. So, yes. uh, you know, let's do it.
1: <laughs> well, I, 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 like that. I have that feeling also that this, um, that there is a cultural structure of feeling. There is a, a general interact, intellect or a, a zeitgeist. And that it has been 40 years. And I've lived all of those as an adult of the neoliberal privatization flow in the tide and to feel the tide change back towards um, actually trying to solve the emergency, the climate emergency, since we have to do it, like you said, um, I think it can get done. So it's it's kind of great. Great. Well, um, thank you so much,
0: Stan, for, for taking a couple hours out of your day to, to chat with me. And um, yeah, it's just a real pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, Gregory. I see your storm seems to have um, um, passed. And um, yeah, it's going to be a good day here. I'm going to go out and garden, and then play frisbee golf, and and just like Frank in the Rock Creek Park, um, and indeed, I passed by some of the same homeless guys that are in that novel. They're barely alive. So um, uh, I'm just a way of saying let's continue. Everybody in and everybody who's listening to this, hopefully they've had a good time, and on to a, the rest of a good day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and before I let you go, um, Delton, Chin and I, Dr. Chin and I were chatting about maybe doing a little panel um, with he and and you and Frank and maybe um, some other folks on that could be useful for our friends at the central banks to be sort of thinking about this. So uh, I'll just throw that out there and maybe we can bat back and forth uh email in a time it'd be interesting to gather a little folk you know some folks together and and geek out on that and just see see what we can uh, make happen just by you know fiat
1: yeah well i'd be i'd be willing to try that uh, i will say this my schedule has has just um gone nuts to the point where i'm not going to do or take on anything new until the fall so, but on the other hand, we're in this for the long haul. So um, I would be very happy to do that, but it, but uh, it will have to be offset into this fall or even this winter.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, no no problem there, and I'm so glad that we got you before your uh, your schedule got crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great, and, and and it's a it's a welcome respite to talk. Uh, I I must say it was particularly fun to talk about literature and the Mars trilogy, but also all these other. More pressing concerns. No, it's been great. So let's do it again. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. All right. Bye Bye. Bye bye.